Shoot, I was hoping for three or four more verses of that. Wow. Um, so let me just comment. That's just a, one of the things I love about that song is, is uh, that it, 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 you know, it seemed like theologically you would say you are strongest. But I like, I like that it uses stronger there because then it's like you can compare it to whatever it is you're thinking about. Uh, whatever it is that, that would be going on in our life that requires strength to deal with, it's, it's a good reminder that whatever it is, whatever its strength level is, he is, he is stronger. So just, I just like that. Okay, so um, as we're looking at this, we're talking a little about parables each week. This is the third week out of four uh, of this conversation. And um, uh, this, this week, we're looking at a specific parable, another one of the great parables. And it, it's, this one was not a hard one to, dis, to, to come to. The, um, the, the conversation today is, is on stewardship. Now, uh, again, if you've grown up in church like I did, stewardship is just a, a, a churchy, clever way of saying we're going to ask for money, right? That's just the, that's the tricky way of saying we're going to ask for money without saying we're going to ask for money. Um, that's part of the whole capital campaign, obviously, is, is not, it's, here's the weird thing about me is, is, um, when I think about that, I think there, for some reason, there's kind of this emphasis kind of on the guy on stage asking for money. Um, I, I don't, I don't like in the capital campaign, just so you know, I don't see a dime of that. Like I don't get a percentage or anything. When the answer, the, the question of when we ask for money, it is, it's meant to be a we who are giving the money are also the we who are asking for money. And so it's a, we're asking for one another to come together and, and, and put together some cash to accomplish what we think God is calling us to do. So as weird as it is, that's actually the picture that I think is the correct biblical one. And then, and then here's the funny thing about all that is when we talk about stewardship, it, it's not hard to find a, um, a parable about stewardship because Jesus told one that's called the parable of the stewards. Now, it's sometimes called the parable of the talents or the parable of the minas, but it should be called the parable of the stewards, um, and that's a more correct understanding of it. We're going to look at that today, um, which, of course, makes obvious sense. Now, what a parable is, for those of you who don't know, um, if, you're, if you're not very familiar with the Bible, you don't spend a lot of time reading it, one, I highly recommend it, um, especially if you've not had a lot of habit with it, I, start, I recommend the first four books of the New Testament are a really great place to start. Um, years ago, Rich Mullins, the musician in a concert, I heard him say, when you've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John 10 times each, then it's safe to move on to other books of the Bible. And, and I don't know if safe is the right word, but I agree with him that that's probably not a bad way to get started with the Bible, is to read those Gospels uh, over and over again um, until you're kind of saturated with them, because they in so many ways are what inform the rest of Scripture. And um, if you don't have those under your belt, and also, just to be perfectly honest, they're a lot easier to read given what we're used to reading in America. And so, you know, if, if, if you've grown up reading narratives and stories and that kind of stuff, then, then reading a biography, which is, that's all those are, a gospel is just a Jesus biography. And so it's just a biography of the life of Jesus Christ and a little bit about him. And, uh, and by the way, very little about him. We get so little, it's so frustrating and disappointing. It would have been nice for us if Jesus had decided to come, if he decided the right thing was to come at a time when we could have had lots of video footage and, and, and written stuff, hundreds and hundreds of pages on our computers and taking digital photos. I mean, even, even coming after the whole film, I mean, that would have been nice because remember film, how it kept you from taking photos? And only got two pictures left. We got to really, these got to be good ones. And nowadays you're like, click, 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 you know, like, because you can delete, delete. No one ever does. I don't think Cody's in here. 40, he had, I was like, Cody, he was trying to find me a picture. Cody will have those, you know him. He goes, um, 
I said, I said, man, you got like 4,000 photos in there. He goes, no, 44,000 photos. I had missed. Like, Tell you what, I'm going to go do something else while you're looking for that photo, that specific one. I don't know if he's found it yet. Um, but that's, that would have been nice. What we have, though, is what we have. That's when God ordained that it was the right time for Jesus to come. That was the vital moment in human history when he decided that. And when he would teach, he often would tell a story. The story was often meant to really confuse people who he did not want to understand it then, but at the same time to clarify things to us as we who understand it now and for his followers who understood it later. And so we can look at these and get a good, clear picture of what these are about. Many times, like in this one, he is picking on a very specific target in the middle of it as well. The Jewish leadership at the time who was opposed to him, um, and by the way, for the, I actually heard a, an expert in Israel refer to them as the mafia um, at the time. That's really the kind of the way they existed was like a mafia organization in Jesus' time, and, and so he's going to pick on them a little bit. But he is walking, so he's on his way to what we call the triumphal entry, which we will discuss the week before Easter in a few weeks. And he's going to come to, to Jerusalem, and there's going to be this big celebration. Well, immediately before going to Jerusalem, he went through Jericho. And the, yes, the same city, the same city where the walls went tumbling down. That's, that's that Jericho. And it's, it's still a city today. You can still go visit it. And so when he, it's, it, we're in verse 11 of Luke chapter, what chapter? 19. That's funny, I didn't have the verse. I didn't want to look, say the wrong one. Chapter 19. Um, and as they heard these things, starting in verse 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now remember, Luke, who was a researcher, wants to clarify what each parable is about. Luke has a, a really kind of a funny habit of explaining a parable in one sentence before he tells you the parable. It's really nice for us. Um, it's, sometimes it seems like he's kind of telling the obvious but he's, he always loves to give, or usually loves to give, just a one-sentence explanation for what the parable is about. In this case, Luke is telling you, um, and by, so when you read Luke, you look, look for that. He's, a, again, a researcher trying to explain what he's about to say. Remember that? You remember that from English? All the English teachers in the room? So you, you tell them what you're going to tell them, and then you tell them, and you tell them what you told them. Good, exactly. So that's how you write. Luke does a lot of that. As a good writer, he does that. So he knows, that he knows that the people who are following him think he's going to go into Jerusalem and say, now I'm king. That's what they think is going to happen. And so he knows they think this is going to happen, and so he's going to prepare their hearts for the fact that that isn't going to happen. In fact, in the book of Mark, one of my favorite passages anywhere in the Bible is in the book of Mark when Jesus goes in the, the, the big triumphal entry and he goes into the temple and these huge, massive crowds have followed him into the temple and they're all, I just can't wait to see what he's going to do. He's going to declare himself king and, 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 and whatever else and he's going to do it in the temple and they're all excited and the Bible says, and seeing that it was late, he returned home to Bethany. It's this huge anticlimactic moment. All the people have been massively disappointed. He knows that's coming. So he tells this parable to prepare them for what is about to happen. So here we go. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So see, he's telling them what he's going to do. He's going to leave. And when he leaves, he's going to be given the keys to the kingdom and when the time is right, he's going to come back as the king to that kingdom. Now, he is the king to that kingdom. He's been declared so, but they're not going to experience that fully until he comes back. So he's giving that warning. None of them understand that. Um, okay, so calling 10 of his servants, 
he gave each of them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. So the, the word here, he calls ten of his servants, his stewards, people who act on his behalf. Um, this is like the, I don't know exactly what everyone's different jobs is here, but if you're, if people, sometimes people are accountants or investors or something like that, um, you know, Ken Lackner or, or maybe Kevin Carswell or others in the room who you would say, hey, hey, here's this. Maybe, maybe that's something that, that, you know, the Greens and Gibson do at Southside that we would say like, here's, here's some of my money. Please invest this wisely on my behalf. Maybe that's done by different people here. So you would say, ask them to do that. And then that's what they're doing. Hey, invest this until I get back. Ten minutes. Now, so you'll know a minute is about one quarter of an annual income. So this is not a small amount of money, and he's giving them ten of them. So ten times a quarter. So, you know, two and a half years of income, and he's giving it each to ten different people. So 20, 25 years worth of income he's now giving to these ten people to steward for him while he's gone. Now, here's what a steward is. A steward, this is important. I think we have a photo. Do we have a photo? So if you're a Lord of the Ring geek like I am, so you know what a steward is. A steward is what the character Denethor is in Gondor. If you've not seen that, I'm so sorry that none of that made sense to you, but Denethor is a steward. He is, notice there's a throne next to him. So he's in black. He's kind of hard to see on the throne. He's on this little chair. But notice the big white throne up, up the stairs. He doesn't sit there. Why doesn't Denethor sit there? It's not his throne. He's not king. He just works for the king, who, by the way, has not appeared for hundreds and hundreds of years in Denethor and the story. He's waiting for a king who has vanished to show back up. Now, Denethor does exactly what we do, which is when the king shows back up, he's mad about it. He's been running the show. He's like the 10th generation of people in his family to run the show. He, I like running the show. I like having all this power. So it, it can be offensive to us when the king shows up and says, all right, I'll, I'll take all my stuff now. But it was never ours. That's the idea of a steward, is that it's not ours. So Dennis, that's, that's the, he's not the king. He's just the steward. That's us. We don't own any of this. And I don't, I don't just mean the church property and all that kind of stuff. Um, we got a beautiful picture of that this week as we actually got the deeds all in writing from First Baptist Church that this property, all of it, every chair which was owned by First Baptist Church, every microphone that was owned by First Baptist Church, and the name tag printouts, much less the 40-something acres here, all given. So it's a pretty, pretty amazing thing. 140-something acres. Sorry. I saw a couple of looks. I was like, what did I just say that was wrong? Okay, so 140-something acres of, of property here. And now God has ordained through the generosity of First Baptist Church, many of you who helped buy this property, that South Spring Baptist Church is now the steward of this property. Owner is a dangerous thought. Steward of this property and every part of it and everyone who visits it and every child who sets foot on this property. We are the stewards of that. That's how that works. Okay, so also you may know the parable of the talents, which is the version, a similar version of this that Jesus tells in Matthew. I'm going to read his, the different one here is to, to one. He, he only gives to three people, and he gives them different amounts in, in the Matthew version of this. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, to another one talent, each according to his ability. And then he went away. So same concept, but a different detail. It is important 
Um, and so in Israel, they're weighing stones. That's how they decide what something is worth. I think you've got some weighing stones um, up there. So they would use these to weigh out different things for, for money. So remember how a, a, a mina is, is one quarter of an annual salary? Well, a talent is 60 of those. So one talent is 60 times one quarter. That's why people talk about it being a lifetime's income. A talent represents what an average person might make in an average lifetime of working. And so that's, that's a lot of, back then at least, that's a lot of money. And he trusts one of these people with five talents, another two, and another one. But notice the phrase, to each according to his ability. That, that God gives different amounts, at least in this parable, that the master gives different amounts based on what the people are capable of. There's a whole managerial lesson here that, is, that is, you could teach for hours managerial stuff from almost this from this one verse, but from all types of things. But notice, by the way, and Dan Bolin, who's a, a leader here in town, he, does a, he ran Pine Cove years and years and years ago, but he, um, he does a great talk about this, like about how, can you imagine for the one talent guy, they're like, this, this may have been his fourth or fifth shot at this. And, and the master had started with five talents with him and had not had a good experience and two talents with him and had not had a good... And now he's like, listen, buddy, I'm leaving once more and this time I'm leaving you one. And we're going to see a fear-based response from this person, which is the failure that he has. Um, and by the way, the term talent that we use today when we describe a gift or an ability or something like that, that comes from this parable. This parable is why the English language uses the word talent in a way other than money. We use it as a talent, as a skill or an ability because of this parable. That changed the English language for us. All right, so um, the two are slightly different. When you see that in the Bible, don't, don't panic. Um, certainly Jesus would have told this a story or a very similar story many, many times. Um, already some of you who have been in, in here for five years while I've been preaching, there are certain stories that when I start them, you already know how they're going to end because I tell them regularly enough. Um, that, and, I'm, and I don't remember um, that I've told them before. Sometimes Wednesday night and the Sunday before, I don't remember that I've told them before. Um, so you just have to deal with that. But, that's a, but it may be slightly different if I tell a story for a different emphasis. It may be slightly different. Hopefully not if it's a, like a, in a real event. I won't tell it differently each time. But if, if it's a meant to be an analogy or a metaphor, and Jesus does that. He tells it slightly different at different times, or his audience is remembering different details about it. That's okay, too. Things, different things stood out to different ones of them um, as they heard the, the stories of Jesus. Now, so the citizens, this is the, the surprising one. Back to Luke 19. You may have never noticed these people, but in, in Luke 19, 14, but his citizens hated him. And they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Never noticed these folks before, did you? The king went, this, this prince, this king to become king went off to receive his crown, his kingship. And the delegates and, and the, the people, some of the people hated him. So they sent a group behind him to show up. So you can imagine this young man, whoever he is, he's going to show up at this kingdom and the, kingdom, the, the king of that kingdom is going to crown him king. And the king gets up there and says, like, hey, come forward, and I'm going to, I'm going to make you king. Not just a lord of land, but I'm going, to, I'm going to make you a king. And at that point, some people in the back of the room go, actually, sir, we, we would like to speak. How embarrassing. We'd like to speak. We don't like this guy. We don't think he should be king. So the delegates would have presented their case before whoever this lord is. 
And the Lord would have heard their case. A little suspenseful. What's he going to do? And when he returned, having received the kingdom, oh, oops. Now we know how this turned out. So apparently this Lord, whoever he is, that's going to declare him king, heard the complaints and decided they were out of line. They were wrong. He's going to make him king anyway. He ordered the servants to whom he had given the money to be called into him that he might, he might know what they had gained in doing business. So the first one came before him saying, Lord, your minna has made ten minas more. Wow. So... He gave him, he gave it to them, he made 10 more. That's where he, that's good return. He said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little. This is a really wealthy guy if a quarter of a year's salary is very little, by the way. But because you've been faithful in a very little, you will have authority over 10 cities. Remember this guy went from being a wealthy businessman to being a king. He's now king of a whole region. And this guy who was faithful with this minna now as faith gets the opportunity to be faithful over a bigger thing. This is a biblical concept. It is a biblical precept that is all through Scripture. We all think we want the chance to be faithful in some big thing. We've been raised on that in the church, right? We are going to kill Goliath. We're going to stand toe-to-toe with Nebuchadnezzar or Xerxes or one of these other great kings of history. That's what we want. We want to dare to be great opportunity. But every one of those stories starts with someone being faithful with something that seems insignificant. Did David get up that day in order to go kill a giant? Is that what he said? You know what? I think I'm going to head up to the army out there at F.S. Domine and I'm going to kill me a giant. Anybody remember what was David doing? He was delivering food at his father's request, right? Hey, son, go take some food to some of your brothers. Yes, sir. He was faithful in a very, very small, seemingly insignificant thing. How often do dads tell their sons, hey, son, get that and take it over there? Like 4,000 times a day? Isn't that why we have sons? (laughs) Hey, go grab that for me, right? So sure enough, hey, go run this. Go run this to your brothers real quick. Yes, sir, and he goes. And next thing you know, he's standing before his king, trying to wear his king's armor, then standing before a monster. And then slaying that monster because he was faithful in something small. We, we all love the dare to be great opportunity, but all the little tiny faithful opportunities in between, those are tedious. They're hard. They're boring. We don't like those. Give me something big to do. My old youth minister used to say, we all want to charge hell with a squirt gun. But whatever little thing God's calling you to do today, man, I don't want to do that. The second came to him and said, Lord, your minna has made five minas. And he said to him, and you will be over five cities. This level of faithfulness. So at this point, if you're not careful, and the parable is going to clean this up for you, but if you're you're not careful, you think, oh, this is based on how much return you get on your investment. Jesus is going to correct that for you here in a second, but that's what it feels like. Well, I've been faithful because I know there's been a return. I do wish in my personal, I, I do wish Jesus had included a, Lord, I invested your men the best I could, but it, I lost it. I mean, I tried and I failed. I mean, it just, it just made no money. But the investment I tried seemed like a good one and it failed. I think I know how the master would have replied to that given what we see here in a second. I think his response still would have been, well done, faithful servant. 
That's a bummer it didn't work out. Let's we'll figure out how to get you in charge of stuff. But, but you invested it. I don't know. This is, this is one of those moments where it's a, the percentage, the amount that comes back seems to be less significant, especially when you look at the talents. Five talents makes five more. Two talents makes two more. Again, it's not the amount. Ten, five, it doesn't seem to be the amount that matters to get the phrase, well done, good servant. It seems to be the fact that they invested, that they tried, that they made the effort. When we're in the middle of a capital campaign, let me tell you how I personally measure success in a capital campaign. By the way, I don't know tons about them. Um, but as I've been thinking about it, because amount is never impressive to God, anywhere in Scripture, you never see this like God going, wow, now that's a large sum. He's, how would he possibly be impressed? After all, it's all his, right? I mean, it's his anyway. So all we're doing is moving around his resources, his time, his lives, his families, his money, his whatever, you name it. It's all his anyway. So that's what, of course he's not impressed by that. In fact, when we see him be impressed, think about this. Remember when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus who's so famous? He comes to Jesus and he goes, um, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, obey the commandments. And the guy says, I do. And he says, um, only one more thing. Give everything, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the guy walked away sad because he, he was a very wealthy person. Was he sad because he decided he couldn't do it? Or was he sad because he decided he was going to do it and was already starting to think about how his life was going to change? The Bible's not really clear about that. There's great theories on who that guy was. Um, Paul McKenzie was telling me one of his, um, one of his friends is, wrote a doctoral thesis on that being John Mark. That maybe that was John Mark who actually wrote about that. Maybe it was Barnabas who actually did that, sold everything and, ordered, and, and then sold it all and gave it to the poor. Maybe. We don't know. But here's what's interesting. If we're not careful, we go, wow, so God wants me to sell everything, my great wealth, and give it to the poor. Well, back in Jericho, right before Jesus tells this parable, he runs into a little guy we know as Zacchaeus, right? The wee little man. And a wee little man was he. It actually does say sycamore tree. No one, no one has any idea why. <laughs> like, why, a sy why does that matter? Anyway, it made sense for them at some point. Sycamore trees do grow in such a way that you could climb in them. Maybe it's just meant to be confirmation, but... But remember, so at the end of that story, Zacchaeus, Jesus tells Zacchaeus, salvation has come to this household. What is it that Zacchaeus had decided to do that inspired Jesus to say, wow, salvation has come? Did Zacchaeus sell everything and give everything to the poor? Anybody remember? What did he give? Half. This is a very wealthy man. He goes, you know what? I'm going to give half of what I have to the poor. And Jesus loves it. See, it's not the amount. Certainly it's not the amount if you take into account that the day that Jesus is sitting in the temple, the last week of his life on earth, and he's watching people, watching wealthy people throw money into a big brass canister that would have made tons of money, and the only one of them that impresses Jesus is the little widow who throws in two pennies. That's the only one who gets Jesus' attention. I love that story. I could so picture Jesus sitting there, bored out of his skull, watching all these rich people throw money in this, and just, just being like... <sighs> Annoyed, I mean, just irritated. As all the people are hovering around him, waiting for him to declare himself king. When's he going to? He's just sitting there like this. Oh, my gosh. Jesus. And then he gets perks up because this little old woman shuffles over there and takes two pennies out and throws it in. And Jesus stands up and is like, did you see that? Did you, did you guys see that? His worldview is so different from ours. It's not the amount. Here's what I'd love to see. I'd love to see 100% of our members in, in, invested in some way. 
Anytime we do anything like this, I'd love to see 100% of our members invested. Since the amount doesn't matter, and it doesn't, there's nothing to hold any of us back if we're a member from being involved. If, if your life is such that a, the two pennies a year for the next three years is what you can invest in something, in pledge or something like that, good. It's between you and God. But I, that, that, that's what excites me is the thought of seeing a high percentage of people going like, you know what, I'm all about this. I can't give squat. Good, that's fine. What the heck difference does that make? Only one person even knows, Mike Benedetti. He's downtown. Even none of the rest of us know. So I just, I just, mm, I love the idea that because the, ma- the percentage doesn't matter, the amount doesn't matter. If we could learn to measure success in obedience, not outcomes, that would be quite a life. Do we honestly believe that this is the right way to think about God? The consequences of what we do are God's problems, not ours. So that's why we give as an expression of trust, because we can. That's why we encourage kids to give. It's just a, it's just a cool thing. The amount isn't the issue. Um, and I will comment on this. This is something we're running into all the time. Everybody's, I know you're all seeing this too. Um, it's the somebody ought to do something mindset. Are y'all seeing this? Like in the media, you watch the media? And, and that seems to be the mindset. You know what, there's a problem. And the response is, is that people say, you know what, someone ought to do something. I asked um, ask some people, I even asked it on my Facebook site. I, I periodically actually ask questions. It's so hard to do that nowadays because everybody's like, what's your agenda? I'm like, I'm really just asking a question. No one believes that. But I really just, I was just curious. Like, what, what do you do with the mindset? I don't know how to make this type of decision. So if, if I have an afternoon off, do I march or do I volunteer? Do I protest or do I work? How do I make that decision? I'll tell you, I have a friend who, who runs a, a nonprofit ministry. A number of you, by the way, are involved with or run nonprofit ministries, a lot of you. And, and they had that, they, they, their response to me was like, every time they see 100,000 people marching, they're like, man, the work I could get done if those 100,000 people would show up at the clinic and work. Like, that would be unthinkable what we could accomplish. But that seems to be the movement of this generation is that someone ought to do something and I'm going to protest until someone does something. Now, I'm not, I'm not putting down protests. That's a, a totally appropriate American thing, and there are times that that's totally necessary. So I'm not putting down protests. I'm just like, I don't know how I make that decision. Like, we got 10,000 of us. I'll tell you what let's do. Let's go down to the Salvation Army, and let's help them organize the clothes and stuff that's been turned in that's been sitting there in giant piles. You ever been in the back? Oh, my gosh, like 20 or 30-foot piles tall of clothing that needs to be organized and cleaned. and take 10,000 people go through that like that. But it, it's a... Someone ought to do something. Well, I'll tell you who that somebody is. It's us. It always comes back to what God has called us to do. We're stewards of our time, and of, of his time and his resources and his whatever. That's, that's what I see in all of this. Jesus coming back to this. What are we going to do with it? Someone ought to do something. Yeah, well, us. Us ought to do something. Sorry. I just asked about English teachers earlier and then I did that. We ought to do something. So another one came. Lord, here is your minute, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. So I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. I don't know how this guy means it. It seems insulting, but I don't know that he means it. He may mean it's impressive, right? But the word here, the Greek word here, austere, it literally means to dry something out. No water in it. Hard. So here we have this hard man, this charging businessman, He takes no prisoners, 
bold, maybe courageous. He takes over other people's businesses. He takes over other people's farms. He takes, so somebody else plants, and then after they plant, he then goes in and sweeps up, takes it over, and he gets to reap what he did not sow. This is what he kind of stuff he does. He conquers and he takes, and apparently this servant was afraid. He was afraid, and here's what I think. Correct me if you think I'm wrong with this, but I, I think he's afraid of the master coming back and him saying, I lost your mena. I lost your resources. That's what he's afraid of because that's what he counts as failure. What he counts as failure is I tried and failed. This is, this is the, the basketball coach who, you know, his team shoots and misses and shoots and misses the first half, and at halftime he tells them, the next person who shoots and misses sits out the rest of the season. Now, what does he want to motivate? Careful shots. What does he motivate? Lots of passing, right? I'm not going to shoot. You shoot. I'm going to pass, right? That is not our God's style. We just talked last week about the gospel presentation as understanding like a, a joining a class that, that the teacher has already given you a 100 in the final grade column. There's no failure in joining the class. It's not possible to fail once you've joined the class. And also failure is guaranteed if you join the class at the same time. You aren't going to do this to the level he would do it. That's okay. He's already given you the final score. That's, I, I think this, that's why I wish that, last, that fourth person was in here. But I think it's already so clear because of this third person. I was afraid to invest at all. So I buried it. I buried it. So that when you came back, I could hand you back your coin. Aren't I so clever? Again, others talk about this man, him, him, that this is a self-important person. Maybe he's one of the people who was opposed to him becoming king. And he thought the guy was not coming back as king. He thought he was maybe going to get to keep it. So he didn't want to risk it. Who knows? There's none of that's here for sure. But clearly what he is, is he was afraid. I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You don't tolerate fools. And I was afraid. And the Lord says to him, I'll condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, that I take what I don't deposit and I reap what I don't sow. Why then wouldn't you at least put my money in the bank? At my coming, I might have collected it with some interest. In your fear, you made such a foolish decision. In your unwillingness to risk, it has cost you. In the Matthew version, by the way, it's not just good servant, it's good and faithful servant. It's very powerful terminology. And its exact opposite is the wicked and lazy servant. So good and faithful versus wicked and lazy. I think here's the question. The guy comes back and says, hey, good news, I played it safe. I played it safe. That's what I did with my life is I played it safe. Didn't invest at all. I had a friend who his dad at his retirement party said, this was my career motto. No hits, no runs, and no errors. My friend, when he heard his dad say that, it just crushed his heart. His dad had just lived his whole life trying not to make errors. That is not a way to live. And it's not the Christian life. In the end, that man standing before God is going to hand him back his minna and say, hey, good news, I didn't lose it. I didn't risk it, but I didn't lose it. How about that, God? No hits, no runs, no errors. That is not what he calls us to. 
I'll say, like I've said before, if you are living, if you are living a boring Christian life, I'm not sure that's the Christian life that you're living. I think he calls us to something else. I think he calls us to something grand outside of our comfort zone. We're, we're, um, periodically, we like to talk about different ministries here, as you heard. Um, Rachel shared, and there was a bunch of them going up on the screen, and that was a drop in the bucket to where this church invests, which means you have lots of opportunities to invest in ministries outside of this, these buildings. Lots. Plenty within these walls. Lots outside of these walls. Whatever it is, whatever passion God has laid on your heart, I promise you there's an opportunity to serve there. Whatever it is. If there's not, you can create it. We'll support it. That's how we do it. That's the best moment. I will tell you, it's my favorite moments as a pastor when someone comes in and says, you know what, I am passionate about this and I want us to make this happen. I want to start up a new prayer ministry. I want to start up a new um, whatever ministry. ministry. And so one of the ones that we do, we do a lot of different ministries to the fatherless. And so I was going to mention today that um, Royal Family Kids Camp and Track, um, that is a, do you have, look at that. I'm not even done, I'm just about to ask him if he has those slides and they're up there on the screen behind me already. Um, somebody help, make sure, Ed, make sure I do that. So on March 28th, where is the, that's the, the information time in here. Is that the fundraising, the dinner? Okay, on March 28th, and that's open. Okay, do need, people need to sign up? Okay, but prefer they sign up. There's a, a fundraising banquet, and a, or just a banquet, for Royal Family Kids Camp. Royal Family Kids Camp and Track are two camps that our church hosts um, in the summer for foster kids. And it, is, it will tear your heart out, so you need to be involved with it. Um, it, will, it will, you will get out of your comfort zone, I promise. And so however you want to be involved in it, you can get more information. Um, you guys wave. I promise you the Nolans will happily talk with you about it. Sandy? Yes, so right out here, you can sign up right after the service today to come to that. I will highly recommend it. You, it is good to be involved in these things, to see what's going on. This is just one of the dozens. But this is what we're talking about. This is what Rachel was talking about. You heard the, the joy in her voice at getting to experience all these different ministries and what God is doing and to see that. We have kind of a nasty tendency to close ourselves in, to, to wall ourselves off in our own little areas rather than recognizing God is at work in big, fun, awesome, terrifying ways. And we're invited to be a part of it. We want that to be the truth for you too. Now listen to this. The master said to those who stood by, take the minute from him and give it to the one who has 10. And I love this response. And they said, but he already has 10. It's exactly the voice. You know it came out. You know it's like that. What were they saying? That's not fair. Right? That's not fair. He already has 10. You shouldn't give him another one. That's not fair. The master is super impressed by their arguments. No, he's not. In fact, he confronts them straight back in their face with this. This is the modernized phrase of this. This is unreal. I love when people talk about, anytime somebody references the Bible as like an outdated book, I'm like, okay, clearly you've not read it or you don't know modern humans. One of the two things is, this is exactly the, the way we would handle this. Wait, wait a minute, that's not, the master goes, I'll tell you, this is, <laughs> that's his way of saying like, okay, you ready? I'm about to explain something to you. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. That's how responsibility works. 
to people who are responsible with what I've already given them, I'm going to give them more. That's not insanity and that's not unfair. That's good investing. Any intelligent person knows this. God is saying, listen, those who are faithful with what I give them, I'm going to give them more to be faithful with. That may or may not mean finances. It can mean any number of different things. But of course God wants people to have the resources who do with the resources what he would do with them. That's what it means to be a steward. This is what I would do with it. Well, I think I know better. Then I will take what you have and give it to somebody else. Isn't that how that works? Like all the investors and bankers and stuff in the room are like, yes, this is how this works. And that's what God is talking about here. I gave you this to do. You don't get me. You don't understand. You thought you got me. You don't get me. So I'm taking away what you have, and I'm giving it to the guy who clearly gets me. This guy risked and risked big. He had to risk big. You cannot risk one minute and get ten back without risking big. So he says, you, you risked big in the kingdom. That's what I reward. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Positions of authority, responsibility, leadership, all of that kind of stuff. It is intriguing to me to hear people periodically complain about not being in a position of leadership. They don't serve. They don't invest. They're unkind. They're impatient. They don't love well. But it's not fair that they're not in positions of leadership. I'm not surprised. And I don't mean just here at the church. I mean in general. But as for these enemies of mine, listen to this. I bet you didn't remember this part of it either. We tend to study the Matthew version because it's a little nicer than the Luke version. But as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over, see, this is like an afterthought. They thought they'd gotten away with it, right? All, all done. But take it back from him. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We'll take that one from him and give it to everybody. And kind of, I always imagine the room kind of starting to clear. And then this, the new king going, oh, wait, wait, one more thing. Those enemies of mine who didn't want me to reign, the ones who sent a delegate, tell you what, why don't you bring them here and slaughter them in front of me? Ouch. The thought that God is not, have, is not a God of wrath, those who take a stand against him, you don't want to be his enemy. He's not apologetic about that, and I'm not willing to be either. I'm uncomfortable with it too. But his, the rebellion against him, the uprising against him, is put down. It is destroyed. Here's the main message of this parable, though. I told you there's always a main message of a parable. Here's the main message. It's not yours. Whatever it is, put something in that, the word it. Holland is doing pronouns. It is a word. A pronoun is a word that stands in place of a noun and something else. <laughs> Holland could tell you. He'll be here second service. He'll have to help me out. Whatever it is, put it in that sentence. It's not yours. Whatever it is, it's not mine. The healthiest thing I do periodically is I sit down with God and I go through everything in my life and remind him, probably reminding me, it's, it's not mine. My wife is not mine and he, she's yours. Each of my children are not mine, they're yours. Anything, it's not mine. Listen to Deuteronomy 8. God is warning his people who he has just given great treasure to. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. Don't let your heart say that. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Don't fool yourself. Every faculty we have comes from him. I'm going to read C.S. Lewis's quote from Mere Christianity. Every faculty you have, your power of thinking 
or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your life, your whole life, exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. All of it. So as I close up, I want to, I want to offer this then to you. There's an interesting law in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures, um, a number of them. And, and so most of the laws in the Hebrew Scriptures are meant to teach something. We talked something about that this last Wednesday night, about the cleanliness laws and the, um, uh, some of the ritual laws and that kind of stuff, what they were meant to accomplish. Um, and that helps us understand it. But this law is really interesting. Leviticus 23, 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleaning after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. What a fascinating little law for God to put in place. This is, this is called the corners law by the rabbis. You shall not reap your corners. You don't reap right up to the edges. Instead, you intentionally leave the edges of your property, un, like with, with food and stuff still on the vine, still on the plant, the wheat, the barley, all the different things they can harvest there. Intentionally don't. But one of the things that's intriguing to me is it does not prescribe how far from the edge of your field you have to stop. Isn't that interesting? It never says how big the corners have to be. I think like most of the Old Testament laws, it's meant to create a conversation within a family. So that that the corners, how big the corners of your field are, says something about you. It's a public display of your stewardship mentality. So it's meant to create the situation where a son is walking with his dad through the fields, and the son says, Dad, I noticed that our neighbor that their corners are bigger than our corners. Does that mean he's more generous than you, Dad? Does that mean he's more trusting of God than you, Dad? Does that mean he has more faith than you, Dad? It's meant to create that conversation. That's that's an intriguing conversation to have. I remember distinctly growing up, again, some of you have heard this before, but my my parents, um, when, when I was growing up, were not particularly wealthy. And my grandparents weren't either, but my grandparents are very, very wise and were able to put enough money aside that they decided to, when, 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 they, um, when they retired, their retirement gift to themselves was to pay off my parents' mortgage. And so in wisdom, my dad continued to write himself a mortgage check every single month. He just sent it to Merrill Lynch instead of to the mortgage company. And so now they have some means and they love to invest it. But when I was a kid, that's not how it was. They're pretty cheap. So I grew, up, I grew up with a dad who, when we would go on a trip, my family, we would go on a vacation of any type. We stopped at roadside state, the state roadside stops and opened up the back of the um, what are those things? station wagon because I'd been right, sitting backwards the whole trip so far, facing the car behind us. Y'all remember those? It was awesome. <laughs> Nothing awkward about that, right? 700 miles later, like, yep, still you. Um, uh, and we would pull over, and we would pull out bread and cheese and sandwich meat, and the cheese was always wet because it had been in the cooler, and it was always nasty. And that's what we would eat. That would, I mean, we were pretty cheap. When we would, if we did stop at a gas station, you got one candy bar and split it. 
among three people. Like that was because they didn't want to buy a whole, like three whole candy bars at a gas station. Are you kidding? At the store, I can buy those candy bars for half as much, which we never did that either. So that was always a comparison of what we also didn't buy. So you can imagine for my young mind what it meant to me one day when my dad, who had a meeting or something, said, hey, here's, here's my tithe check or my offering check. That's what we should be calling it. Unless you're giving a tenth, it's an offering check. If you're giving a tenth, that's a tithe. That's what that's called. But an offer, he said, here's my offering check. Could you put it in the plate for me today when it goes by? Because he couldn't be there for some reason. I don't remember why. And I remember as a kid getting in there, and he didn't tell me not to look. So I opened that thing up and looked at it, and there was more money that I knew existed on the planet on that. Now, nowadays I know it, it was not a massive amount of money, but compared to the type of things that my dad didn't spend money on, it was a huge amount of money. And if I didn't know before, and I don't know that I did know before, at that moment I knew he meant this. My dad did not invest money in something he did not believe in. It was a sign to his son that this faith thing for him, this church thing for him wasn't a game and it wasn't a religious activity. This was real to him. I want to encourage you, whatever that is, and I don't know what that is for your family, whatever that is to make sure your family knows, this is real and our kids know. We don't act silly about things we don't believe in and we don't, we don't risk and things we don't believe in. And we don't do things we're afraid of unless it's something we believe in. And most of them know it. We don't give money to it unless we believe in it. So that's a, that's a good reminder for us. Um, how much of my land should I harvest? The truth of the matter is the answer is none because it's not your land. How much of God's land should I harvest is the question they were learning to ask. Um, I'm going to talk about this a little more next time. Uh, Dr. Powell once cited John D. Rockefeller. Um, that Rockefeller once said to, doc, to um, I'm now citing like four people, but to Edgar Goodspeed, Dr. Goodspeed, if a man shows me how I can do something good with my money, I think he's doing me a favor. Allegedly, it was John D. Rockefeller. I'll talk more about that next week when we have a commitment time next week. But investing, I will tell you if, you've, if you've been over there, if you've got the emails I get, which I'm going to start forwarding out to people, I just need to start forwarding them out. The emails I get, we get an email back when people visit once, and a lot of times they'll send us back an email. I send, we send one to them asking questions, they send a response back. And so this week, the one that we got was the first the mother sent one back, and then the father did saying, our special needs child, we've been visiting churches for over a year. I'm going to have a hard time telling you this, by the way. That's probably why I shouldn't read it, because I don't know that I can read all the way through it. Our special needs child, we've been visiting churches for well over a year. And for the first time, we visited this church, and the people who you had back there working with the kids knew how to handle my special needs child. And my other kid who screams and cries at every time she, we, goes to church, we go to church, she loved it. This mom says she was called out of almost every church service she's been a part of until she came here. I will tell you, if you, if you, I recommend investing in this church's ability to raise up a future generation of Christians ready for whatever God has for them is a good investment. It's not our home. Very soon we're going to go home and see the king, talk to him about our investments. So let's pray. Father in heaven, have mercy on us. We are terrible at this stewardship thing. It, it is so hard even to just remove from my language in a short sermon the word mine. 
or ours, the recognition, Lord, that it's all yours, all of it, is something that we cannot wrap our little brains around. So, Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts to remind us of that truth. That no matter what we're talking about, we've talked about stewardship many, many times in a lot of other ways. Because it's, it's such an important principle, Lord, that we remember that none of it is ours. It's not our time. It's not our talents. It's not our gifts. It's not our skills. None of it. It's yours. All of them are yours. So Lord, I pray that you would humble us and help us to remember to invest all of these resources you've given us back into what you would have us invest in. And thank you, Lord, that you give us so many opportunities to do so. Thousands and thousands of ministries that are having a huge impact in the kingdom and in your world. Thousands that we can give to and be involved in. Lord, that's, that's a, just an amazing gift. Thank you for that. I pray you would guide us in what you would have us do with your resources, that we would do it your way. We pray this in the name of your Son as we gather as your church. Amen.